Hello everyone, it's your host here, Marcel. Last week, we hosted Noreen Quadir and talked about activism around asexual people of color. If that sounds interesting to you, you should check out Noreen and the work she does in episode 7. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking a lot about specific groups of individuals and centering marginalized folks in activism and otherwise. All of this talk about mobilization has had me thinking a lot about this idea of liberation. Liberation as a world without oppression, liberation as equity across groups of people, liberation as ultimately freedom. It's this idea of freedom that I really want to get into and explore largely by exploring the antithesis to freedom incarceration, and in particular, mass incarceration. I feel so strongly about this issue of mass incarceration that I will be splitting up this theme across the next two episodes. So during this week's episode, we'll be joined by writer and activist Kenyon Vero, who formerly served as the U.S. and Global Health Policy Director of Treatment Action Group, for a conversation around some of the grassroots and policy activism that he's done on the issue. Just a quick content warning, in the episode, there is some brief mention of violence against Black gay men and transgender women, so please take care of yourselves, everyone, and exercise discretion when appropriate. Overall, the conversation was a good time, so let's sit back, enjoy, and I'll see you all at the end of the episode. everyone. Welcome to Defining Equity. Your host here, Marcel. This week, we're going to be having a conversation about criminal justice and prison abolition. And so to sort of aid in this discussion, you know, Defining Equity, we're all about humanizing these issues. I have with me Kenyon Farrow, a longtime activist, writer, someone who's just like really out here doing the people's work to sort of like have this conversation with me. So Kenyon, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Um, I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah. So just before you even dive into, you know, the issues and everything, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what's your story? Yeah. So um, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, born and raised. I grew up in a neighborhood in Cleveland called Garden Valley. It's in this housing projects in Garden Valley. My parents divorced when I was really young. Mm-hmm. And I come from, I mean, my mother was an activist. You know, she was a rank and file member of the Black Panther Party before I was born. Mm-hmm. And after she left the Black Panther Party, she left in 71 when Fred Hampton in Chicago was assassinated because Mm. she had my sister at the time and thought it was too dangerous. But she went on to continue to do other work, some of which was kind of organizing folks in the housing projects that we grew up in. My mother took in women who were being abused by men. I mean, there's a whole range of things. So um, mm-hmm. so I sort of grew up with a, a certain kind of like social justice background and way to think about things. But I also like, I didn't think I was going to do this. I, was <laughs> to, I took dance as a kid. I was a, an artist and, and mm-hmm. um, I danced. And then later, by the time I got to high school, I was doing more acting and performing. And when I went to undergrad for theater, moved to New York, was doing stage work mm-hmm. and, um, and a lot of classical stage work. I was doing a lot of Shakespeare work. In mm-hmm. fact, the last show I did in New York was I played Laertes in the production of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot was going on in New York in the early aughts. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just couldn't see myself in the theater anymore. I couldn't quite see how to connect what I felt like were just some critical issues, particularly impacting Black folks and particularly Black and Latino LGBT folks in New York City around criminalization and mm-hmm. housing and HIV and And so I gave up the theater to start organizing and also Mm -hmm. um, to write. I always could write. I knew I was a strong essay writer. I always had been. So I knew I wanted to sort of craft that more. And so I left the theater and like started organizing. And here I am. Oh my God, that's awesome. (laughs) Just out of curiosity, what kind of dance did you do? Mostly modern and jazz. Yeah, a lot of modern and jazz. I mean, even as a kid watching like, The first time I I mean, I saw Ailey on TV in the 80s, probably on like PBS or something before. I just was like, this is everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that was where I sort of started, mostly modern jam. Got you. And so when you started organizing, did you take after some of the things that your mom had taught you? Like, I'm just kind of curious how... 
that looked. Yeah, I so how I started organizing. So I was personal friends with one of the co-founders of Fierce in New York City. So Fierce stands for Fabulous Independent Educated Radicals for Community Empowerment. Amazing. <laughs> so, uh, I'm surprised I remember that. But um, so Fierce is still around. They're a queer youth of color community organizing project. And, um, you know, I was friends with one of the co-founders and they were initially so like around 99, 2000, they were making a film sort of documenting the history of queer folks in the West Village and the Christopher Street Piers, right? right? And in the process of doing that documentary, New York City, if I'm not mistaken, sold the piers basically to the Parks Department, mm-hmm. New York State Parks Department, who then redeveloped the piers into what you see now, right? Okay. So if you think about the piers, if you see in like Paris is burning, yeah. or they looked like that up until about 2002, when they were shut down. And so in the process of shutting down the piers to redevelop them, a whole lot of tension started to happen between the new gentrifiers of the West Village and the mostly Black and Latino queer folks who hung out mm-hmm. in the West Village at the time, the number of bars and clubs that were up you know, along you know, the piers. And so piers used the documentary to mm-hmm. really, then they shifted the sort of focus of the documentary to really talk about the closing of the piers and what it would mean and really use that to kind of launch the organizing around stopping the criminalization of queer and trans young people in the West Village. And so that was the initial work that I got started in. And mm-hmm. um, also too, like, so part of what started to happen once Fierce, we started to then get press, like mm-hmm. the cover the village voice at one point, like I think in 2002 or whatever. And so there were all these things happening and we became sort of seen as like the opposition to this whole plan to regentrify the West Village and whatnot and mm-hmm. move folks who hung out there. And so we sort of needed people who could do communications work and kind of myself and my, now we've been friends for a long time, but who also was a fierce member, mm-hmm. Merv Marcano, a lot of ways he and I kind of took on the communication stuff for fierce. And we ended up, some of it kind of self-taught and trained ourselves. I mean, he mm-hmm. actually was much younger than me, but had already been doing communications work. And then we sort of like learned some stuff together. And yeah, and that's kind of how I started doing organizing work. Wow. Awesome. Cool. Well, there's, I mean, there's so many things you've been involved in. Like, full disclosure, I was like definitely looking at your website before this interview and I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> like, I was like, how has he done this in like 15 years? Like, how did he, I, yeah. So we'll definitely get into all of those things. But before diving into all of that, I like to just sort of do like a little icebreaker just sure. to kind of not really break. There's not really ice necessarily. I just, I don't know. I think, I think they're cute. So whatever. Right. Um, so I want to, so I have three questions. And so I want you to just answer one or all of them, whatever you're feeling, just for the listeners to kind of get a better idea of who you are. Okay. So question one, what was a dream that you used to have all the time growing up? Question two, who was your childhood best friend? Describe them. And question three, how would a high school teacher describe you? So any of those three questions? Wow. Um, so I, I kind of want to do all three. So <laughs> mm-hmm. first question. So a childhood dream that I used to have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's funny, I'm a person who now rarely remembers, you know, people say you dream every night. I rarely remember them, if right. that's true. I, twice a year, I might remember a dream. I <laughs> Literally. Um, so it's, that's interesting. But um when I was a kid, I used to have this one recurring dream. I have never told this in an interview before, but mm-hmm. I used to have this recurring dream that in the dream, I would be in my bedroom mm-hmm. and I would wake up in my dream and get out of my bed and go and look out of the window. Mm-hmm. And looking out of the window, so I the housing projects I grew up in actually kind of contrary to I think the way people think about housing projects actually had a lot of green space on our, mm-hmm. we were kind of in this sort of townhouse section of them. So like, so outside of my bedroom, you could, it was like this big field. And so uh, in the wintertime being Ohio, it would, you know, be covered in snow. And so I, in the dream, I would wake up and go out to my window and, you know, kind of be looking at the field with snow. Mm-hmm. But then sitting right outside my window in the snow in, you know, a very, a white robe, stereotypical mm-hmm. white Jesus would be sitting, sitting cross-legged in the snow. Yeah, and then huh. I would, you're right. And so I would, and so I would see, look down and see Jesus sitting there. And he would look up at me, and then I would like fall out of the window always in the dream. And so then I would fall and hit the snow, kind of right in front of him. Mm-hmm. And then 
I would start to be sucked into the like like I'm being sucked into the ground. Oh, like, no, like I was like in quicksand or something, right? And so then I would and I would be looking at him and reaching out to him, like help me from being sucked into the ground. <laughs> and he would just would look at me and say, "Where are you going?" <laughs> and then that was how my dream would end. <laughs> right, this is like a dream I would have at like six, seven, eight years old. Wow. So right, which is. Completely bonkers. I don't know what that <laughs> says about me. But um anyway. So I used to have that dream all the time as a kid. So what was the other next question? Who was your childhood best friend? Okay. My childhood, I mean I had a few. I would say um one of my childhood best friends, you know, she's on my mind all the time. But um her name was Tinita Lawson. Tinky was her nickname and um we're like the same age. I think I was like maybe two or three weeks older than her. Mm-hmm. And um, we knew each other since preschool and went to school together pretty much every class, every year through eighth grade. And we often were like the top two kids in all of our classes. We were It was mm-hmm. often she and I competing for like top grades or this, that, or whatever. She was very political. I remember being in junior high school. I mean, she was reading Nikki Giovanni and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison. Oh my God, what? Yeah, when we were like in seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. And was very much like woke, as we would now say. Um, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, she just was like a really incredible person who I learned a ton from. Um, I guess sort of sad story is that, um, you know, at the time I was in eighth grade and I was like trying to get out of Cleveland public schools and go to like a private school or whatever. And, and actually she was interested too. Mm-hmm. The difference was her mother didn't pursue it on her end even after my mother went to her house to say look <laughs> my oldest daughter my older sister went to prep school i can teach mm-hmm. you how to do the forms the financial aid like whatever oh, wow. you know tinky's really smart like you don't let this opportunity go by mm-hmm. she didn't do it so she stayed in public school and long story short um she was killed when we were 20 mm-hmm. um i found out the summer before my junior year was still I was right after my classes had ended. And uh, yeah, she'd been killed by some, I think, drug dealers that either her, some members of her family had been associated with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, still is a hard thing uh, for me. Um, It's okay. No, but I, a lot of what I do now, I have hurt my mother and I have Tanisha Lawson to thank for because, Mm -hmm. yeah, because she really, uh, you know, taught me a, a lot, and uh, I do. I still, I still miss her, but uh, but she was my childhood best friend. Wow! Thank you for sharing that. Um, do you want to answer that last question, or do you want? To- what will my teachers say? <laughs> <Yes>. Okay, <laughs> elementary school teachers um, that I was smart. I was like a sweet kid. I was a nice kid, and I think they also would say. That I was, I was chatty too. I could run my mouth, but <laughs> but I was always a kid. I was very a little bit sneaky in the sense that I could. I knew that they thought I was like this smart kid, and they thought I was sweet. And I right. knew, I knew very clearly how to do the dirt that kids do and keep it away from them. Like I very right. rarely got caught in doing some like dumbness because because right. I knew how to like. <laughs> I was very similar you know um, so yeah. there's that well to I guess switch gears before we just get to talking more so about your work and just talking about prison abolition like as a concept for our listeners would you mind just painting I guess like a little bit of a backdrop of what criminal justice and mass incarceration look like in this country, especially as it relates to queer and trans people of color? Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably not a surprise to most people at this point that, you know, the U.S. is the biggest incarcerator in the world. We have been floating around 2 to 2.4 million people in prison for now 20 years. And a vast majority of those people being prisoners in the South and way disproportionate number, about half of them being people of African descent. 
even if you, you know, assume a certain logic about crime and punishment, most of what people are in prison for are drug-related offenses. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I think, so in terms of like how it relates to queer and trans folks, I think, so I think one, just because of both racism and homophobia and transphobia in our country, if you are queer, trans, and person of color, and particularly from poor communities, your Mm -hmm. opportunities for employment are often terrible. Mm -hmm. Or even your ability to stay in school or certain things because of particular kinds of like violence and harassment, you know, is often challenged or you're put out of the house, right, and end up homeless, you know, then you you end up in a whole range of like survival situations, right, to stay alive, which lends a situation where then you have sort of disproportionate numbers of queer and trans black and brown folks in prison, Mm -hmm. disproportionate to their population. The other thing is that when you look at foster care, which just one disproportionately black families are broken up and targeted for foster care, right, Mm -hmm. Um, children are taken out of the home much readily for various sorts of issues with parents and families. Mm -hmm. So then you have a situation where young people who are in foster care, if they are recognized to be queer or transgendered, first of all, they're almost disproportionately Black or Latino. Then if they also are queer or trans identified or appearing in any way, Mm -hmm. they are less likely to be adopted. So then you have a bunch of kids who are disproportionately in foster care who are queer, trans, and as you start to age in foster care, you're not going to be adopted. So then those kids end up either running away from abusive situations or homophobic or transphobic foster homes, or once the foster parents determine that the kids are queer or trans, they send them back to the state. And then those young people are disproportionately then going to be homeless or unstably housed, you know, Mm -hmm. once they're older, et cetera, et cetera, right? And all of those things, again, lead to the prison. So, you know, you have these specific ways in which queer and trans people are particularly targeted for prison and jail. Yeah, <sighs> that is that is too real. So I know that oftentimes, like in activist circles, social justice spaces, whatever you want to call them, people often will use this term prison abolition. Folks who are kind of working to dismantle mass incarceration, school to prison pipeline, etc. So like... How would you define that term, prison abolition? Yes, I've defined prison abolition as really a framework to think about what our world would need to look like where prisons, policing, forms of punitive state control or surveillance were dismantled. And that system was not the primary way through or any of the way through which conflicts or acts of harm or frankly, just, you know, people who are deemed to be undesirable or whatever get Mm -hmm. housed or are penalized, right, for any of those things that might be deemed acts of harm or just by virtue of being, say, homeless, right, or, you know, having mental illness. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's about, a lot of times I think people think it's just about, like, well, opening up the prisons tomorrow and, like, letting everyone out. But it's actually really about thinking through, yes, we don't need to have prisons. They have not always existed in terms of the course of human history, in terms of how people deal with violence and harm. They actually perpetuate more violence and harm than they actually solve. Hmm, Um, And so where would we need to have to go socially, culturally, politically, economically Mm -hmm. in order to end the cage and all of the ways through which people are, whether we're talking about policing systems, whether we're talking about punitive three strikes laws, the drug war, the school to prison pipeline, the way what should be a social safety net, right, for welfare or food stamps or public housing, all become ways through which people now are penalized and can, in fact, be criminalized, right, and brought into criminal justice, quote unquote, settings. So it's really thinking about what is a world without that system? And what are the pathways we can get there? Yeah, that's real. What are some, I guess, some alternatives to this carceral state that we have in place? I guess, like, what would that look like for folks? Yeah, so I think, you know, one thing that people will often talk about, so in in situations where there is conflict, harm, and in some cases, violence, systems of transformative justice, so that what does it look like when actual taking the state the carceral state out of it or Mm -hmm. the policing entities out of it, what happens when people actually get to make decisions about what the harm was to them and what 
what reparations, in a sense, sort of look like on behalf of someone who has committed harm. So, for instance, when I think a lot about, for instance, homophobic or transphobic violence, I think about, and for a long time in New York City, I was kind of working on these individual Black gay men would end up dead in their apartments with no signs of forced entry. I mean, there were so many of those for like a long time. Mm -hmm. Still happens and, and certainly happens to trans women as well. Or... One particular case I remember where a guy in New York City was attacked by some dudes in his neighborhood. It was on the day of Brooklyn Pride and, you know, was beaten so severely that he was in a wheelchair and had severe physical disability Mm. after it, even though he survived. So to me, the guy who attacked him was arrested and given a 10 or 15 year prison sentence or whatever. And to me, I thought to myself, so somebody who is homophobic and commits an act of homophobic violence, Mm -hmm. then is forced to go into a homophobic institution, right? Right. That is fraught with all kinds of violence, right? At the hands of the institution itself and then in the way in which it constructs people to be able to engage each other, right, through violence at Mm -hmm. the sort of prisoner to prisoner level, right? So... I don't understand what that's solving, right? So to Mm -hmm. me, I wondered about what would it look like if part of the restitution reparation, like how do you sort of transform not only this person from committing more kind of acts of violence, but how can that person also be an agent in changing other people? Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, what would it look like if actually this person had to meet with not only the person that he attacked, but with other say, black amen, right? Or to go work for an organization, right, that was working with black amen. Mm -hmm. What if that person was then given skills to sort of go to schools and tell their story and have to talk about what they did and why Mm -hmm. they were wrong and why, you know, in a kind of high school setting, bullying LGBT people. You mean, like, there are ways in which this could be sort of transformed that you actually begin to, like, not just sort of punish the person who did it, but actually help involve them, not only in things that could be done to sort of provide some sort of support and reparations to the person and the families that they damage, mm-hmm. but actually in terms of transforming homophobia itself, right? Like, so right. that they actually participate, their change doesn't become individualized, but is really about a broader system. So I think when we think mm-hmm. about abolishing prisons, it's not that I'm interested in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome kind of was <laughs> some sort of dystopia where everyone's right. just like out every person for themselves or whatever, but that actually you then shift how you think about harm and what solutions might, again, provide for families or individuals or people who have been actually physically harmed or how whatever situations are. And then for the person themselves, like what are ways that that person can actually perhaps not only sort of transform themselves in the space in which they were in when they committed an act of harm, but mm-hmm. begin to kind of help others from preventing to do the same. Mm, that's so, that is so interesting. Yeah. And I know that there are models for that already exists in mm-hmm. a few different places. It's interesting. I think a lot of folks struggle with this idea because there's this idea that prisons keep us quote unquote safe. Right. The fact that we have people who, you know, have committed these acts of crime, hatred, violence, etc. Since they're housed in another institution, my community is now safe. But right. honestly, it sounds like the cultural pieces that lead people to commit acts of violence like that to begin with aren't going to be eliminated one by one because mm-hmm. this is like a macro level issue. So I guess I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on this idea of safety when people bring that up in terms of like the prison industrial complex as like a way to justify the inequities and stuff like that that we currently see? Yeah, I mean, the, the concept of safety and safety vis-a-vis systems of punishment and punitive measures, it's a ruse, it's a, it's a false the falsehood is no nobody is safe <laughs> because <laughs> there's two million people in prison, right? And anybody who tells you that, oh, that's why crime has been going down in the country over the no, because actually violent crime was actually already going down when we got two million people in prison. Mm-hmm. So the two don't correlate. And so yeah, I think part of it is that it is about transforming kind of reimagining what notions of safety look like and what mm-hmm. notions of healthy communities look like, right? That the real safety comes when people have access to things that they need, food, shelter, mm-hmm. meaningful employment with living wages, healthcare, and ways to both manage and contend with sometimes with stress mental health issues, things like, you know, that kind of exacerbate violence, systems in place that really deal with those things head on, right, or sooner Mm. that aren't 
punitive measures. Those are the things that create safety and not what we are told is keeping people safe, which is locking people up. Right. So like I mentioned a little bit earlier, your resume is thick. So I would just love to hear about like, yeah, like some of the organizing work that you've done around prison abolition. I know you worked on a number of projects such as Project Unshackle and you're on a few boards and things like that. Would you mind just telling folks about like the pieces you've written, the things you've done? Yeah. So, right. So I'll get to Project Unshackle, right? So that was a project that was started to try to bring together, you know, HIV activists and criminal justice activists and advocates to sort of talk about how these things sort of fit together and how to think differently about the connection between mass incarceration and HIV. Mm-hmm. Part of that was driven for me by in, say, around like 2003 or so when there was the beginning of this kind of huge national hysteria about men on the down low. We spent about a decade with the sort of most we could say about the HIV epidemic in the United States was, mm. well, it must be these men who are bisexual in the black community who explain the sort of reasons why the HIV rates among black gay men are so high and why they're so high among black women, right? And so right. there's all these books, all these Oprah shows and Law and <laughs> Order episodes and all this foolishness. Oh, no. It was all dedicated to this, like, specter of the DL man, right? And and some of that hinged on, when you would hear people talk about it, a lot in the Black communities, people would, would link it to mass incarceration. So people would say, well, you know, they locking all these brothers up, and then once they get in jail, you know, you know what's popping in prison, and then they come right. home and bring AIDS, like, wives and girlfriends. I mean, that was very much a part of the yeah. narrative. And so, at the time, um, so when that was happening, like, 03, 04, I was actually living in New Orleans, and I was working for Critical Resistance, you know, mm-hmm. knows really the organization in the United States that really sort of started to really not only frame prison abolition, but also develop actual chapters and projects that were really trying to advance a prison abolitionist movement. Right. So I was their first regional coordinator for the South. Mm-hmm. So this is in the middle of all the DL stuff happening. And so I remember trying to Google stuff about prisons and HIV. Well, probably wasn't Google because it was like 2004. It was probably like during a Yahoo search. This <laughs> 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 is how old I am. A Lyco search or something. Like MSN. Right, like totally. Like <laughs> MSN is something real, you know, 1.0. Right. But um, in any case, uh, so I did my, my interweb search. Right. And I came up with... Um, I remember seeing these reports that the Bureau of Justice Statistics were putting out about HIV in prisons. They used to do them every two years. It's funny that as the policy director for Treatment Action Group now, I am not a science or data person, right? Right. <laughs> not my orientation, nor has it ever been. However, I was able to look at that and kind of come to some conclusions. So looking at the whatever 2001-2003 report, I remember noticing that actually there were a higher percentage of women with HIV Mm -hmm. in women's facilities, almost double than there were men who were HIV positive Mm -hmm. in men's facilities, right? And Mm -hmm. so that to me raised a red flag because I was like, okay, so something here is happening that doesn't match the narrative because you would expect there to be way higher percentage of... Now, there are more quote-unquote, men in men's prisons than than women in women's prisons, right? But right. Um, percentage-wise, proportion-wise, mm-hmm. you have way more women who are HIV positive in those facilities than men who are. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking about butt sex, <laughs> like mm-hmm. a better, you know, and sex between men or even trans women in men's facilities, you would expect mm-hmm. a much higher number of, and even percentage-wise, of folks mm-hmm. on the men's facility side to be HIV positive. Right. So that to me didn't add up. So then I started like, again, doing another internet search. (laughs) I started calling people, probably people who I know now, but I didn't know them at the time. Mm -hmm. But I got on the phone with three like HIV policy people and researchers. And I was like, hi, I'm like this random person (laughs) (laughs) living in New Orleans. And I'm seeing this kind of play out in the press. What is this link between people in prison? And HIV. And so in all mm-hmm. three of them, I remember saying to me, well, actually, it's not about sex in prisons. That actually the dynamics of mass incarceration mm-hmm. are actually what's driving the HIV epidemic 
Right. And not just about who's having sex with who inside the facility. It's actually the rates of transmission in prisons is actually much lower in many respects than outside. So there's, so there's that. And so then that made me sort of think about this differently. So then fast forward, I stopped working as a staff member at CR. I moved back to New York and I was working for organization CHAMP, Community HIV AIDS Mobilization Project, which is kind of, it sort of morphed into the HIV Prevention Justice Alliance. So mm-hmm. PJA, as a lot of people know, was originally CHAMP. And so um, at CHAMP, I was aware that there weren't really a lot of connections. I think there had been early in the epidemic, but at that point, you know, in the, I said around 2005, there weren't really a lot of ways that sort of HIV activists and criminal justice folks were actually really working together. And so we sort of lost this project. So we did a, a retreat, you know, with some folks, you know, both criminal justice and HIV activists and a few folks who kind of worked in both, mm-hmm. on both spaces to really look at like, what are some ways we need to be thinking about mass incarceration as a driver of the epidemic and what are some local work that maybe people are doing and that we can try to support that are looking at these things, right? And so that was kind of how Project Unshackled became this initial kind of network. And I think that that after PJA formed, after Champ folded, a lot of that work now kind of rests at the Center for HIV Law and Policy, their Mm -hmm. prevention justice project. Kind of was what Project Unshackled was back in the day. Yes. It's interesting to have worked on some things that like happened and then got sort of moved into other organizations. I can kind of see how they have developed over the years, you know. Got you. Yeah. Cool. Tell us a little bit about your writing. I know you've written a number of pieces, and I just think that's like a really awesome way of going about activism. So, yeah. So, do you have like a favorite piece and stuff like that? A favorite? You know, my favorite piece is a piece that nobody read. (laughs) (laughs) Tragic. (laughs) Right. It's like, like you know, um, it's true, actually. Um, Well, it's one of my favorite pieces, but I, um, Yes, I started writing. I always could write. I always knew I was a good writer. When I was an undergrad, I remember one of my professors pulling me aside. Mm-hmm. Akbar Mahdi in sociology said to me, <laughs> he, said, Kenyon, he said, Kenyon, you got an A minus on this paper. He said, I know you wrote this yesterday. <laughs> he said, just because I can tell you barely spell check this. He's like, but I, he's like, and you are lucky. You're the kind of person that you write well enough right. that you could even get an A minus pulling this off at the last minute. Right. But <laughs> if you actually spent some time on this shit, it would actually be much better. <laughs> so fair. Right. I was like, okay, well, you you got me, mm-hmm. and he was entirely right. I was, you know, hit spell check and then print and ran to class. Right. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there was that. So I knew I knew I could write. Um, but yeah, I it's interesting because when I was in New York and I was acting and I was beginning to sort of transition into more organizing and activist work, a lot of times when I people I say, oh, you know, I was really interested in in writing. People think because I was an actor, like sort of plays or screenplays or whatever. And I, I had no orientation towards that. I knew I wanted to write essays and had already been, you know, I was a Baldwin fan and a Bell Hooks fan. And so I knew that was kind of a lane that I felt like I had a lot to say. And so, um, so yes, I just, yeah, kind of started writing. And I, at the time, had a, um, a friend who was an editor, still is an editor, was an editor mm-hmm. at the time for City Limits in New York. And then later some other things but um yeah and I, he kind of was my first editor and so from there I then started a blog and then my blog really kind of took off and so mm-hmm. I was, for me I was actually at the time I was blogging when blogging was more popping and um, <laughs> you know it's sort of a newer thing and um and people actually wrote and um and not just did clickbait and whatnot but um <laughs> this the, shade. <laughs> that was shade. but it's true or right like kind of I don't know, these weird thing pieces that are all the kind of same, everyone's writing like the same thing. But, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. I, we is it dark that. outside? I like, might be an eclipse. <laughs> what is this? Right. I'm very frustrated <laughs> when I see passing as writing these days. But um, <laughs> I, keep, I keep trying to not shade. I keep going back into these shady places. <laughs> But anyway, so I, I started blogging partly because I knew that as a writer, you know, writers have to write every day or write regularly enough. It's how you kind of hone your craft. I'm also lazy and I have written, you know, because people tell you, you know, writers or artists in general should journal and whatever. And I have bought 
every kind of journal, mm. every leather bound, right. you know, engraved situation to mm. black and white composition books. I have them all. Right. And they all have three words in all of them. <laughs> all 500 sitting on my shelves. Um, <laughs> so, unfortunate. <laughs> very sad and unfortunate. But I thought if I'm blogging, if I'm forced to write, because I think people are looking, right? People, right. you start to then pay attention to how many people are looking at different posts or whatever, it would force me to write more regularly, right? And it did. And it actually, and it improved my writing. So I started that way and then decided to go to journalism school because I wanted to actually learn how to write in a really kind of, I knew I could write like essays and I could write polemics and I could write Mm -hmm. in that respect, but I wanted to really be able to learn how to write for kind of news form, right? To both be able to write a news piece without my screaming voice in it, right. but also how to, and even if writing opinion pieces, but how, how to be able to really use data, evidence, inter, even interview people while I'm mm. writing an opinion piece, right, that actually then quotes and cites people and makes it richer. So I went to school to learn how to do that. And, I, and also because I was interested in radio and some other things. So yes, yeah, so that's kind of how I started writing, you know, and then have published pieces online and some papers and couple things in magazines, but then a lot in like, I don't know, a dozen anthologies that I have pieces written in. And actually now I have a, <laughs> I have a one, a, co- a collection of some of that work that's done, some speeches that haven't been published, some things that have been published, mm-hmm. some old blog posts that I think are pretty solid that I want to publish. And then I have two other projects now that I want to start mm-hmm. as like book projects of themselves. One of which I think is going to be about my home, about Cleveland, about the neighborhood I grew up in. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to take some research. But yeah, so I, I love writing. I sort of, I mean, I kind of fell back from writing for like probably the last three or four years. One, because my current job is pretty demanding and I don't have the same kind of headspace to right. like write. You sort of need, headspace is the only way I can describe it. A lot of writers will talk about really needing time to just sit and be alone to you, you mm-hmm. know, journal and when you have time to really compose, put things together, you know, it sort of happens when it happens, but I have no, <laughs> very little headspace. <laughs> so, so I'm excited. I'm actually making some shifts in my work to be able to actually have more time to think and write and I, the ideas are starting to come. So mm-hmm. I'm uh, excited about that now. Awesome. Awesome. And would you mind just telling us a little bit about like what you currently do with Treatment Action Group? Sure. Um, so my current job is, it's a long job title, U.S. and Global Health Policy Director, which is policy director because (laughs) 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 it sounds very grand. Sounds amazing. Now (laughs) there's two of us when there was one of me, you know, Mm -hmm. before a year ago, um, (laughs) you know, on the policy team. But um, so Treatment Action Group is a research and policy think tank. I mean, we really focused on getting us U.S. and globe to really end epidemics, really focused on HIV, also tuberculosis and hepatitis C to some extent, partly because of the way TB and hep C impact people with HIV globally. And we grew out of folks are familiar with ACT UP and the history of the AIDS movement. Our founders at TAG, including my current boss, Mark Harrington, were members of ACT UP, the Treatment and Data Committee of ACT UP, and then they split in 92 and mm-hmm. started TAG. And so um, a lot of what I do is, on some level, every policy hack in D.C. who's kind of focused <laughs> on, <laughs> focused on, you know, the sort of budget appropriations, you know, in Congress and other kinds of legislation, and then the sort of work of the federal agencies that are important for our issues. So the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, PEPFAR, and then some other kind of international, you know, multilaterals like WHO and Europe Unitaid and some of those bodies. A lot of our kind of initial um, work, and it's, it's still true about our work, was very much focused on pushing for the right research to happen, that that research was ethical and included the right folks and kinds of informed consent and those sorts of issues, right, in terms mm-hmm. of clinical trial design and the real sort of, on some level, kind of human rights and bioethics of it. Right. But then also post the sort of research and development phase to really then do advocacy around drug pricing issues, mm-hmm. um, how drugs are regulated, and whether, you know, say pharmaceutical companies even register drugs in countries that have 
high need for them, right? So you have, in some cases, drugs that get, it doesn't happen as much anymore because there's enough people who pay attention and who scream and yell about this. But Mm -hmm. it does happen where you'll have a country that had thousands of people who were a part of a research study, a drug gets developed, and then they're slow to do a registry for the drug that Mm -hmm. people in this country put their bodies on the line to make sure it was developed. You know, so we do stuff at that level as well. But I think kind of one of the most growing parts of my job, you know, has been right before I started the tag, probably until in 2013, we really started to get more back into the domestic HIV work. Mm -hmm. Tag had been doing more sort of global work or kind of U.S. investment in the Mm -hmm. kind of global space for a number of years. But, you know, got back really more involved in what's happening sort of nationally. And being in New York City, essentially between my boss, Mark Harrington, Charles King at Housing Works, who actually got arrested at the International AIDS Conference in 2012, Mm -hmm. both of whom were ACT UP members and knew each other, but really hadn't worked together in 20 years. But they got arrested in the same paddy wagon and started talking. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) right, only, you know, only hoodlums and activists, you know, conspire in the paddy wagon. Right. So, um, (laughs) so anyway, um, what happened? So they kind of a discussion about what was happening in New York State happened. So that the initially Governor Cuomo in New York State was about to basically fold the AIDS Institute, you know, which is a sort of state part of the health department that focuses on HIV prevention and treatment and data mm-hmm. collection for the state. They were going to be folded into the rest of the health department and really lose them as a specific agency. So part of what the discussion was, well, how about we actually do some advocacy to one, stop the governor from just closing the AIDS Institute, but really reimagine its role. And what if we decided that we wanted New York State to be the first state in the country to really end HIV as an epidemic in the state? And so that was a campaign that then grew into organizing really activists, service providers, et cetera, ASOs and CBOs across the state of New York to really push for what is now, um, mm-hmm. you know, Governor Cuomo's AIDS 2020 plan that's still being implemented or whatever. And so from mm-hmm. that work, it sort of was kind of a, an interesting moment because that had, was already starting to happen when I applied for my job at TAG. And I, mm-hmm. in my cover letter, said that, you know, I think that there's a lot happening. And so this was like, I started in fall of 2013. So that summer when I applied, I said, you know, there's a lot happening at the national space. And I think this, we need to be paying attention to what's happening in Congress and with appropriations right. and those sorts of things with the national aid strategy. But if we really want to do some of this work, and I wasn't even thinking about the in the epidemic work, that was still very nascent for TAG. But I was saying we need to be figuring out how to support local and state organizing work. Mm-hmm. And so because we have this sort of in the epidemic product, so now what we're we're actually doing a lot of work to not just export the New York State model, but really help other jurisdictions learn from that model in order to develop their own plans, right? And specifically for us, I mean, we do a lot of work with NASDAQ, um, who does, mm-hmm. you know, kind of partners and does a lot of the work with the health department level. But for us, it's also about a lot of what was possible in New York City and why New York City's plan is so robust and goes beyond just biomedical sort of Mm -hmm. treatment and prep and et cetera, but really has a whole bunch of social and structural kind of drivers that it's also trying to address Mm -hmm. that we know are important to the epidemic and people who are impacted by HIV. That happened because community drove that process, right? And it's still very much actually driving and implementing it. And so for us, it's also really important that communities, wherever, whatever state or city that are also implementing PANS, have a very clear role for community to also help construct what it actually means to end the epidemic in their jurisdiction and what the strategies are going to look like, right? So that's a huge part of the work that I'm doing now. We're specifically focusing on the South and working with Southern advocates and jurisdictions to really like develop the plans because of right. you know, the impact on the South. So that's a, that's a huge chunk of my work right now. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So like, what do you do like outside of all of this? Like, how do you self care? Like, what do you do on the weekends? Like, just outside of like all this like amazing activism, writing, etc. Like, how do well, you take care of yourself? Yeah, outside? that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I ask myself that um, a lot. No, I am. Um, 
I try, you know, I one, um, I have, I mean, I was never, even though I was a grew up as a dancer, that never to me was like, I never thought about it as like exercise and work. Mm-hmm. But now my 42 year old behind has to go to the gym. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know, I mean, I really have gotten way more kind of invested in like just, yeah, taking care of my body, like, and not, you know, like I'm not. You know, like a super gym bunny trying to be some big muscle, but I appreciate the time and what it what I know that it just does for me physically and even just from my kind of emotional state. Like, you know, I'm a Scorpio and when I'm in my right. moods, if I go and run, mm-hmm. I'm better, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, I do I do some just like physical exercise and activity. Um my I, it's funny, I don't even think about myself as somebody who like it's particularly super concerned about my diet, but my friends make fun of like how mm. much they're like, you you always have every kind of berry, <laughs> raspberries, blackberries, strawberries, all in the refrigerator. Like you're always eating. Like people, it's funny, people pay attention to what I eat, particularly right. if you come to my house. Like if I go out, I'm going to eat whatever I want. Right. But I'm, I'm, you know, but, like, <laughs> but I cook a lot at home. Right. And like what I cook is, I guess it's, it's generally well. So I do, I mean, those kind of things are, are good to me. And, and also I travel so much. So when I'm home, I do really like to cook. It's useful for lots of reasons. Outside of that, um, I mean, some of it related to the work. I'm a big nerd. I read constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just am curious about the world. Like what has sustained me in doing this work is that every job I've ever taken, every campaign I've ever worked on, every, all of it, I was always because I was interested, right? In learning something new. I took the job at tag, not just because I needed a job, although I did, but I, I was concerned about what happened when the Supreme Court decided that not every state had to take the Medicaid expansion. And I knew right. the states that weren't going to take it. And I knew mm-hmm. that was going to create Jim Crow healthcare. I mean, I knew right. that that was going to be the, the impact. And I was in a fit about it. And it didn't feel like really anybody else in the country was enraged about it. Mm-hmm. And frankly, and only now is that beginning to surface because now the white folks in the states that got the Medicaid are mm-hmm. mad as hell that they're trying to take it. <laughs> so, and are, you know, storming these town halls like, you right. know, Salem, Massachusetts 300 years ago. So it's like... <laughs> Um, <laughs> just, you know, great, do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's that, but I, but I guess I, that's to say that I'm, I read a lot. So in every, you know, I'm always like, even in the work I'm doing, I'm thinking about, okay, there's this piece of this something that I want to learn about. Right. Right. Outside of that, I read a lot of like biographies, particularly a lot of musicians mm-hmm. and I'm a huge music nerd. Like I love going to music live shows. And I generally, once you get to the point that you're playing like Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. except for Prince. <laughs> you know, God rest his soul. Most people, I'm not seeing at that level. I did just right. see Beyonce this year, but usually I <sighs> like small shows. I right. like going to see, you know, artists in like a venue that's like a couple of hundred people. Right. Right. And, and of every genre. I mean, R&B, soul, hip hop, rock, punk, mm. reggae, folk, mm. country, blues. I'll do all of it. Like right. I like what I like. So I'm a big music person. I find a lot of yeah, I really like that. And I'm also a house head too. So like I like a house music spot. I need to yes. fall into a house music scene every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's <laughs> awesome. So looking at time, you know, we definitely should probably wrap up soon, but you know, I like to end every episode with a little bit of reflection. So, you know, earlier I asked you a little bit about your childhood and like who you are and everything. Just looking back on that person, do you think that the person that you are now is like who you imagined you would be? Yes and no. I definitely thought, even though I would say it was slightly skewed, I always thought that I was going to be more of a kind of artist activist mm-hmm. than I think now I'm more like scholar activist or kind of whatever. <laughs> right. Writer activist or whatever. But I think the basic sort of idea of who I am now is kind of who I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like I said, I, I thought more I would be more in performing arts. But the people I always liked, even as a kid, were people who had some political sort of half souls, like Ozzy right. Davis and Ruby Dee and Paul Robeson and mm. even Prince and people like that. Those are like the people that I thought were like pretty cool. I didn't think I'd still be single, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it is what it is. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, you've lived a great life. So honestly, like, yeah, I mean, listen, I can't complain. Right. I really can't. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, if people can't keep up, then you know that's on them. Um, right. <laughs> but yes, and and lastly, if you could just go back and say something to a younger version of yourself, what would that thing be? Wow. Um, it would mostly be you're okay. Be easy on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was hard on myself in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I think that would be my my overall message. Like, you yeah, know, be okay. Yeah. And like, yeah, be be a little easy with yourself. That's real. Cool. Well, thank you so much again for coming. Thank you. Join us no, on the it's show. Totally my pleasure. Um, yeah. So, just you know, where can folks connect with you? Sure. Um. So, folks, probably my Facebook is usually kind of full, but I'm mm. I usually look at the birthdays and then delete. People I don't remember <laughs> on their birthday, but <laughs> so you might catch me on a day where I have a little space. But if not there, um, you know, Twitter at Kenyon Farrow, same thing, Instagram, yeah. or also check my website. You can contact me through email there. It's just KenyonFarrow.com. I'm about to do a redesign. I want to look sexier, but yeah, it's all there. Cool. And do you have any? Lasting words, thoughts, feelings, emotions, anything like that. Um, it's rough right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for lots of reasons, but you know, stay focused, stay diligent, do the work, and have fun. That's real. Yeah. Well, yes, that's Kenyon Farrow, everyone. Thank y'all again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. I hope you all enjoyed Kenya's insight and hilarity during this episode. I personally learned a bit more about what alternatives to mass incarceration could look like and look forward to diving more into this next week. If you have any questions or thoughts on this episode, feel free to get in touch with us at definingequity at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be doing part two of this chapter with an interview with someone else doing amazing grassroots work. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned.